1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually we'll begin just before that, chapter 9 I believe in verse 24, and instead of going all the way to verse 22, we're going to go to verse 13. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24, and we'll read through chapter 10, verse 13. I also wanted to mention one other thing, and that is uh, how grateful I am for your kind condolences uh, since my mother's death. Um, it's, it's not been easy, but at the same time, I wouldn't wish her back. Uh, she is enjoying her best days yet, and uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with her and my father and my brother. And uh, anyway, but your kindness toward our family has been uh, very much appreciated, so thank you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in 24, and it's there that Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, the, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Thus far, God's word. I felt that way this morning when the alarm went off at uh, 4.30. Sometimes the most precise way to know where you are is according to where you are not. That's how a GPS works, like, like the one on your phone. It's a process known as trilateration, and it involves uh, any one of a number of satellites, though three in particular that emit signals, all of which intersect right 
where you are. So on the one hand, I'm speaking to you from uh, within this room, but more precisely, I am speaking to you at this pulpit from a latitude of 33 degrees, 54 minutes, 55 seconds north, and a longitude of 117 degrees, 59 minutes, 42 seconds west. That's exactly where I am right now based upon where I'm not. Interestingly, when you study the Bible, oftentimes the most precise way to determine what you're looking at is based on where you're not. So let's do a little Bible uh, trilateration this morning and see how this works out for our passage in 1 Corinthians 10. The first signal that we pick up up emanates from the outset of chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, which is uh, the, the very beginning of this section in which we find ourselves this morning and have the last couple of weeks and will until next week. In this section, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians not to puff up with knowledge, but rather to build up with love. Don't be self-centered, be others-centered. And so for the next three chapters, that is Paul's main message. Self-centeredness, no. Other-centeredness, yes. The second signal comes from the balance of chapter eight, verses four through 13, where Paul says to the Corinthians, here's how you can do that. Here's how you can be other-centered. Don't exercise your right to eat meat offered to idols in the company of those who may be tempted to fall back into idolatry. In other words, live a life of deference to your weaker brothers. Uh, That's loving. That's, That's what builds up. The third signal comes from the whole of chapter nine, verses one through 23, where Paul says, here's how I am other-centered. I don't exercise my natural right, my scriptural right, to be paid for the work of ministry. Now, maybe Paul wants to avoid being mistaken for one of the paid and uh, problematic hucksters that were so popular back then, uh, a modern version of which you may see while you're clicking through the channels on TV. Um, These are the ones about whom Paul is going to speak at length in his second letter to the Corinthians. Maybe Paul wants to avoid the potential conflict of the client-patron relationship, which includes feeling ultimately beholden to the congregation that's paying your salary instead of to the Lord. Well, in any case, Paul's aim in ministry is the salvation of others. That's what he's after, and we see that in chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. So if forsaking salary increases his opportunity to see men and women come to faith, then he'll do it, because that's what's loving. That's what builds up. So these three signals, be other-centered, not self-centered, Here's how you Corinthians can do that. Here's how I do that. All intersect at the point at which we find ourselves this morning, where we see that the apostles' aim is not only the salvation of others, but the certainty of his own salvation as well as that of the Corinthian church. 
And so, in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Paul speaks to the certainty of his own salvation by way of this athletic analogy in which he emphasizes the importance of persevering in the faith by way of, uh, of self-discipline, uh, uh, self-control, focus, while in chapter 10, he speaks to the certainty of the Corinthian salvation by way of historical examples from the life of Israel and emphasizing the importance of persevering in the faith by resisting temptation. And it's to that that we will give ourselves this morning. So here's Paul's approach to helping the Corinthians be certain of and persevere in their faith, all of which is related to understanding and addressing temptation. So here's the way forward this morning. Uh, Verses one through five there of chapter 10, Paul issues a warning concerning temptation. Verses six through 11, he offers historic examples concerning temptation. And then in verses 12 through 14, he provides encouragement amidst temptation. So with all of this sobering talk about temptation, one would think that temptation is the main point of this section. And to be sure, it's a big point, but it's not the main point. The main point is this. God is faithful. God is faithful. Notice there in the second half of verse 13, God is faithful to protect you from being tempted beyond your ability. And in the midst of that temptation, God is faithful to provide you with a way of escape. God is faithful. Now on the one hand, that's a hopeful word because we all struggle with temptation. Uh, We welcome God's uh, uh, protection from it, provision in the midst of it. But on the other hand, it's a frustrating word since at times each one of us has felt tempted beyond our ability and in the midst of temptation without a way of escape. But God's word is clear. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, well, God might not let you be tempted beyond your ability. We'll see how it goes. Nor does it say God may provide you with a way of escape. It just depends on in what direction the wind's blowing that day. No, no, God definitively says that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide a way of escape. So that's good news. That's good news for all of us here this morning since it's news into which we can grow as we uh, hear and adhere to the warning and the examples and the encouragement that's outlined here in this passage for us. So let's begin by considering Paul's warning. A warning that before applied to the Corinthians, he applies to himself, and we see that warning here in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and it's couched in the familiar terms of the Isthmian Games, which were held every other year there in Corinth. So all of these images are very familiar to those uh, Paul is writing to. He says here in 924, do you not know that in a race, 
All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable one. Now, Paul takes that and he applies it to himself in verse 26. So, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But I do discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here's the bottom line. Paul understands that faith is not like uh, uh, Ron Popeil's old rotisserie oven. Remember that? Where you set it and forget it. Paul understands that faith requires attention. First service, nailed that. (laughs) Paul understands that faith requires attention and perseverance. Holy sweat, if you will. As Paul moves into chapter 10, he applies that same warning now to the Corinthians. And as he does, I want you to notice three things. The first thing I want you to notice is Paul begins chapter 10 by really leaning in to the Corinthians as if to say, of what was directed to me uh, here at the end of nine is for you too. It's important. I want you to know it. Second, notice that Paul refers to God's Old Testament people who were Jews as the fathers of his New Testament people who in Corinth were largely Gentiles. Paul explains that connection in Romans 2.29 where he writes the following. But a Jew, what is a Jew? A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision, which was the physical mark of the Jew, is really a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter. So the history of God's people down through the ages is really a singular family history, mostly Jewish in the Old Testament, mostly Jewish in the New Testament, but all united by God's spirit throughout, which is a far more substantial bond than blood. Third, notice God's, or rather Paul's, Two-part warning here to the Corinthians. Part number one. God's Old Testament people were richly blessed. I mean, they were richly blessed. Here, five times over in these few verses. In verse number one, they were blessed by the cloud that protected them from uh, capture and return to captivity in Egypt and that pointed them both day and night toward the freedom of the promised land. Verse number one, we also see they were blessed by the sea into which Egypt hoped to drive them and kill them, but through which they were saved by God. Verse number two, they were blessed by Moses who, along with the cloud and the sea, was used by God to save Israel from destruction. And concerning that day on which they were to be destroyed and uh, were saved by God, we read these words in Exodus chapter 14. The Lord saved Israel from the hands of Egypt. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
So that sea that was supposed to kill them ended up being the way in which they were saved and destroyed their enemies so that they could walk back to the beach when the waters had closed and the Egyptians had been killed and see uh, dead bodies and the waves lapping up over their lifeless forms. Uh, Grizzly, but true, and because of that, the passage continues, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, Exodus 14, 30 and 31. Finally, God's Old Testament people were blessed through their desert sojourn with manna to eat and water to drink. But notice that Paul is careful to identify the manna and the water as spiritual food in verse number three and spiritual drink in verse number four to clearly designate the supernatural source of each. Going so far as to write in verse four, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now we gotta pause right there and ask, what does Paul mean by that? What does he mean that the rock was Christ? Does he mean that in some way Jesus was with Israel during the Exodus? Well, let's just do a a quick little sidebar here. If you're a note taker, these are three great passages to to jot down. Um, First in Luke 24, that's not one of the three, but it does set us up for this morning here. Uh, Jesus explains that he can be found in the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. And in the books of Moses, Christ is clearly seen in the Exodus, though not as a man named Jesus, uh, the son of Joseph and Mary, a native of Nazareth. That's all for later. So how does one identify this pre-incarnate appearance of the Christ? Here are the three passages. Passage number one, Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21. Wherein the Lord says to Moses there in the wilderness, he says, behold, I send an angel or a messenger. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. Now, who is this messenger who pardons transgressions? I thought only God could forgive sins. And who is this messenger in whom the name of God resides? Jesus did say that the Father's name was in him. Uh, These two things should tell us something. So that's clue number one. Clue number two, Exodus 33, 11. Exodus 33, 11, we read that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now that's curious because doesn't the scripture also say that no one has seen God at any time? And even when Moses encountered God on Sinai 
It happened as follows. The scripture tells us, the Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So how do we reconcile this seeming contradiction? On the one hand, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. On the other hand, the Lord told Moses that no one could see his face and live. Unless the one to whom Moses spoke face to face was this one in whom God's name recited and by whom Israel's sins were forgiven. Clue number three. Jude chapter 1, verse 5. This really blows the lid off the whole thing where the veiled identity of God's Old Testament messenger is clearly revealed because Jude tells us, in fact, it was, and I quote, Jesus who saved Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, yes, the second person of the Trinity was with Israel in the wilderness. The pre-incarnate Christ, the one whom we know as Jesus, was with them there. Paul's point is this, in all of what we've just mentioned, Israel was blessed. I mean, they were super blessed. Can you imagine walking across the uh, bed of the Red Sea on dry land? Can you imagine the Lord literally leading you and guarding you to the place that he wants to take you? I mean, that is like, wow. I mean, super wow. But the wow factor concerning what they just read was nothing compared to what they were about to read. And we know this because right at the outset of verse five, Paul uses the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, it's as if to say, you think that was something? Well, I've got something to show you. It's like uh, ringing a a grammatical gong to make them sit up and listen. Earlier this week, I parked my car uh, in uh, one of the lots over at Biola as I went to the library at the end of the day, I left the library heading back to my car, crossing through the, the plaza in the middle of which is that giant uh, carillon, those large bells hanging low there over the plaza. As I'm approaching the bells, they began to ring five o'clock. Well, I w- it startled me. Uh, some of you have maybe been there when those bells go off. They are loud. But it startled me, let me tell you, it startled a dear woman who was pushing a double stroller who looked like she'd been hit with a defibrillator. I mean, her body shuddered and she went up in the air. And that's exactly what Paul is going for here in what is now part number two of his warning concerning temptation. Take a look at verse five. Nevertheless, nevertheless, all these people who were party to all of these blessings, nevertheless, with most of them, not just a few, 
Not just a sad and sorry few, but with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now we wonder, along with the Corinthians, how did that happen? I mean, if I'd been there, that wouldn't have happened. I'd have been one of the few with whom God had been pleased. So on the heels of this warning, Paul tells the Corinthians exactly how that happened, followed by four examples and exhortations to keep them from from doing the same. How did it happen? After all God did for Israel, exemplifying other centeredness, building them up in love. After all that, Israel remained self-centered, puffed up, desiring evil, as we see there at the end of verse number six. On the outside, they, they did everything right, right? They passed through the sea, they followed the cloud, they ate the manna, they drank the water. They were on their way to the promised land with their uh, uh, Sunday school quarterly tucked under their arms. But on the inside, they were still in Egypt. Egypt may not have been great, but it's what they knew. And in a weird way, it's what made them comfortable. And that's where they wanted to be. And Paul wanted his readers to know that what happened to Israel could happen to them. And what could happen to them can happen to us. We can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Take, for example, this morning. I see your bodies out there, but the real question is, where are your hearts? That's why Paul went on to explain how to keep this from happening, how to combat temptation and persevere in the faith. So we read in verse number six, Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then down in verse number 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So let's take a moment and and, and break this down here. First in verse number six, Paul told the Corinthians, do not desire evil. Don't desire evil. Is that even possible? Well, by sheer willpower, no, it's not possible, but by God's design, it is possible. Then what is God's design? Well, second, we see in verse 11 that God's design is knowing and understanding that these things happened as an example for us. We're we're to know them, we're to understand them, and we're to respond to them. One, one scholar said that the stories of the Old Testament are not merely uh, objects of antiquarian interest. <laughs> the Old Testament isn't something that you pick up, blow the dust off of, and then read like you would uh, Grimm's uh, fairy tales. No, these, these stories, these accounts, these real life happenings, happened to teach us and were to respond to them. When I was an undergrad, um, there was a paper that was circulated a couple of times each week called the Semi-Weekly Broadcaster. 
And the broadcaster included all sorts of announcements concerning events and personnel and policies and all the things that happen on a busy college campus. Now, if you looked at nothing else in the broadcaster, you needed to at least look at that one section at the top of which were written three words. Read and heed. Forget the rest of it. In fact, it was sometimes called tongue-in-cheek, the semi-useless broadcaster. But you got to pay attention to read and heed. Many Wheaton College undergraduates could have been saved great pain if they had simply been faithful to read and heed what was in that section. And that's, what's, that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, as well as to us in verses 6 through 11. Read and heed. Do, do you want your heart to be warmed to the Lord? Then read and heed the example of God's people. Do you want your desire for evil to dissipate and even disappear? Especially that, that one grinding temptation from which you cannot escape? Then read and heed the example of God's people. Third, notice that in God's design to combat evil desires, these examples were written down for our instruction, uh, our admonition, as a warning. Any one of these words can fit right there in that place. So, let's be instructed, warned, admonished by way of these examples. Uh, Example number one in verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now the term idolater is closely related to desire evil there in verse number six. In fact, in his other writing, Paul often equates evil desires to idolatry. This example comes from Exodus 32, where uh, uh, we find idolatry taking place that led to sexual immorality. And largely because the people were self-focused, they weren't others-focused, especially focused on God. Example number two is in verse number eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. This comes from Numbers 25 and involved sexual immorality that was introduced by way of idolatry. And that due to being self-focused and not others-focused and especially God-focused. So in these first two uh, examples, as is often the case, uh, we see one sin linked to another sin. A single sin can metastasize and include other sins in its cancerous spiritual spread. So selfishness can grow into jealousy that can grow into theft. Drunkenness can grow into anger which can grow into violence. Uh, One scholar points out how David in committing the single sin of adultery, in fact, broke all 10 of God's commandments by way of that single sin. So sin is cancerous. Example number three, we find it in verse number nine. We must not put Christ to the test. 
we must not put the Lord to the test. That comes from Numbers 21 and involved testing the Lord's patience. Testing the Lord's patience, which we learn in Psalm 78, began in the hearts of the people. It started there, it was planted, it sunk root before it ever uh, broke the surface and manifest itself in complaints. Of course, this occurred because they were self-focused and not others-focused, especially God-focused. This reminds us that we can't dismiss the silent serpentine ways of our hearts. We can't just say to ourselves, well, nobody knows I'm thinking that or feeling that and stuff it down and expect it to stay there. At some point, over time, in time, it will come out overtake us, and maybe even others around us. Example number four is in verse 10. We must not grumble. This comes from Numbers chapter 14. And it sounds harmless enough. It sounds like something children would do, right? Children grumble. They grumble about their homework. They grumble about dinner. They grumble about bedtime. They grumble about coming in from uh, playing, they grumble, grumble, grumble. In fact, I remember years ago hearing Chuck Swindoll speak about that word in particular, and, and he said it comes from the Greek word gogodzu. He said that even sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Gogodzu, 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 gogodzu. Well, here's the thing about grumbling. What began with grumbling in Numbers 14.2 metastasized to include organized rebellion in 14.4, and then attempted murder, really the attempted assassination of Moses and Aaron in 14.10, due to the people being so self-focused and not other-focused and especially God-focused. So in light of these four examples, Paul wants the Corinthians to consider this. If God punished his Old Testament people with death for their evil desires, how much more his New Testament people with eternal judgment, especially after being clearly warned and illustratively exhorted as the ones on whom the end of the age has come. That is to say, we have the whole picture. We live in an age not of Old Testament promise, but of New Testament fulfillment. We know God's many Old Testament words summed up in his singular word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So beginning in verse 12, Paul makes clear application of all this. Uh, he's issued a warning. He's given us some examples concerning how to think about it. And now he says, you want to combat evil? You want to fight temptation? You want to persevere in the faith? Well, here's what to do. His first point of application is take heed. Therefore, that is given what you've read in verses 1 through 11. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. Just because you've seen God's greatness doesn't mean that you'll submit to it. We all know that, don't we? 
Because I would imagine most of us here have seen God work in our lives in some very definitive and maybe even dramatic ways. And we've been grateful. And then gone on our own way, living self-focused lives. You can think of it like a platform conductor at a busy train station who believes that he's been to a variety of faraway destinations for having simply called out their names for all of those years. That he'd gone everywhere when in fact he'd gone nowhere at all. This is why in his second letter, Paul instructs the Corinthians to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. That is, consider whether you're really living uh, by grace through faith or by works or by convincing yourself that you're in a place where you are altogether not. So take heed. Paul's second point of application is take heart. Take heart. Read with me here. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. I'll always remember Richard Rigsby telling me uh, years ago he went and visited a woman, uh, elderly woman, uh, and asked her what her favorite verse uh, happened to be, and she said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He said, why is that your favorite verse? And she said, because it reminds me, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And that's exactly what um, uh, Paul is saying here. In your temptation, you're not alone. Your temptation is not unique to you. Temptation, especially sexual temptation, uh, can be shameful and isolating. And that's why it's helpful to remember you're not alone. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Years ago, I ended up being seated next to a well-known Christian counselor at a, at a commencement ceremony, and uh, we uh, talked with one another at length. I have no recollection of really anything we talked about, but for this one thing, I recall him saying that after he had seen his 100th client he realized that he'd heard it all. He'd heard, it only took 100 clients, and everything after that was pretty much variations on a theme of trial and temptation. So what this counselor knew and knows in practice, God's word states in principle, your temptation is not unique to you. And this is one of the reasons that New Testament singing is a horizontal exercise. Now to be sure, we sing to God, but really we sing to each other as well. And as we do, it's to be reminded that we're not alone. We're in this thing together. Uh, as you sing, you're encouraging the person next to you, and that person is encouraging you. Paul's third point of application is remember and rehearse. Remember and rehearse. And specifically this, God is faithful. God is faithful. Two memorably dark seasons in my life were a season of depression 
It was in the last century and a season of despair already in this century. And during my season of despair, simply remembering and rehearsing that God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. Brought greater stability in the moment and hope for the future than anything else. Some of you uh, probably remember Becca Stinson uh, and her brother James. They were part of the Grace family during their undergraduate days uh, at Biola. Well, their parents, Debbie and Spencer, were students of mine back in the late 80s and early 90s when I was working on the campus of Whittier College. And this past Friday, I read the following on Debbie's Facebook page concerning her husband, Spencer, who's being treated for brain cancer. She wrote, Spencer has been rapidly deteriorating and will be starting hospice shortly. He's already very tired and can't handle many visitors. I will be reading any comments and encouraging words to him, so feel free to add them below or to reach out to me if you have something that you want me to share. You know what Spencer needs to hear right now? He doesn't need to hear what to do. Spencer needs to be reminded of who's in charge. Spencer, God's got this. He's faithful. You may not be strong enough to lift your hand. He'll reach out and take it, and he'll bring you safely across. God is faithful. The Apostle John wrote, the saying is trustworthy. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful faithful. Well, God's faithfulness is not only wonderfully true, it is wonderfully accessible as well. That is, it comes with handles. You can grab on and, and, uh, and hold on to it. And in Seasons of Temptation, Paul's fourth point of application there in verse 13 is to escape and endure. Escape and endure. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will also provide the way of escape. Not that you may avoid the trial altogether, but that you may endure it. Natural questions are, what, what is that way of escape? And, and will I truly be able to endure the temptation? And the answers are, God will provide the way of escape, but you've got to look for it. <laughs> got to keep your eyes open. Got to keep your head on the swivel. And you will be able to endure the temptation, but you've got to follow God's way of escape. Now, we want more details than that. We, we want it written down just, you know, A right down to Z. But that's all you need to know. In fact, to know more would limit you from seeing the countless ways that God can work in your life, even in the midst of temptation. Can you imagine Israel at the water, wondering what to do? Water on one side, hills on either, onrushing Egyptian army in the back, trying to go through some 26-point outline that God had given to them in order to escape. They 
All they, all they needed to know was that God was faithful. And what did he do? He did the last thing anyone would have imagined. He opened up the water. And not only did they walk through, he used that water to crush their adversaries. Remarkable. For years, my grandfather was a firefighter for Los Angeles County. Uh, He was once fighting a fire up in Altadena at Loma Alta Park. And he was with a group of other firefighters and the wind shifted and they all of a sudden found themselves entirely surrounded by flames. Uh, They were trapped. Uh, This was it. And so, as you can imagine, they began wildly hacking and whacking all the surrounding brush. And as one of the fellows took his clearing tool and laid into a bush, he heard a giant clank. He pulled the bush back and he looked inside and there was a faucet. And so he called to the other fellows and they came rushing over and they ripped out the bush. They turned on the faucet They pulled out their county-issued ponchos, they unfolded them and spread them out, let the life-saving stream uh, hit the top of the ponchos, and they climbed underneath. And the fire burned over them. And as the fires of temptation encircle us, God is clear. He will provide a way of escape so that we can endure the heat but it's our job to look for it and then to take it. Well, as you continue to battle temptation, as you continue to persevere in your faith by saying no to self, yes to others, and most of all, yes to Christ, who not only sojourns with us like he did with Israel, but, but uh, lives within our midst and our hearts as well. May you take heed and remember that no one is too great to fail. May you take heart and realize that you're not alone in your struggle. And may you remember and rehearse that God is faithful so that you can escape and endure every temptation. Let's pray. So Lord, that's our prayer. We confess that we are self-centered. We want it our way. We want to go back to Egypt. But you have saved us from the iron furnace of our sin. You are leading us on to the promised land where there are no tears, no death, and where we will live together forever with one another and with you. Lord, help us to persevere in that walk, in our faith. And I pray for those here who are especially enduring great seasons of temptation. May the way of escape be apparent. May you help them to bear up and endure uh, the heat. And use all of us in helping each other toward that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.